0: The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Good morning, Love City. How are we doing? Good. Good to see all of you. I'll tell you what, when uh, you sing worship songs like that, you, you almost don't need a sermon. (laughs) <laughs> Almost. You're not getting out of it. I'm still going. But that that uh boy to sing theology that rich and deep and we don't coordinate we don't coordinate the worship songs with the the sermon. That's, we don't strategize that, but I'm telling you you're going you're gonna to see some overlap today by the power of the spirit. Amen. Uh I'm Pastor Vince if you don't know that. Uh and I do a lot of the Bible teaching here and that's great privilege that I have right now. So uh, if you would, please turn with me to Mark chapter 15, uh, verses 1 through 24 is going to be our text for today. Today we're continuing in our series. It's called Servant King. We're just working verse by verse through uh, the book of Mark. Not sure if any of you have been keeping track, uh, but we are now seven months deep into uh, the book of Mark which is, uh, you know, time flies when you're having fun. I know all of you are amazed that it's been that long, right, because this has been awesome. But uh, we're only three weeks away from finishing the book, and so that'll actually happen on Easter. Uh, we'll be in Mark 16, so that's pretty cool. Um, last week we saw the sham trial of Jesus by the Sanhedrin, they're, they're the ruling body of religious leaders. Uh, we saw that, as well as Peter's denial of Christ um, and just on that, since it's in my mind, I, I want to take a moment to really commend all of you for your maturity because last week's text brought us into a discussion of emotional manipulation uh, and, and the need for our feelings to be held accountable to God's word. And as the text brought us there, I went i went pretty uh, hard in the paint, okay, so to speak, uh, that's, that's a little March Madness reference for you there, in case you didn't catch it. Harden the paint. Uh, and and I, I called that out on purpose, actually, because Brother Andrew told me yesterday that, uh, that I'm a classically masculine stereotype, except for the fact that I don't care much about mainstream sports. So uh, really, Brother Andrew, if you can hear this, I just wanted you to know I can do sports ball references just fine. Thank you very much. I think he's right outside that door right there. I'm sure he has a response, too, but... I'll get it later. Uh, No, (laughs) seriously, uh, I've gotten, this is the truth, I've gotten encouraging messages this week, I mean, more than I have in quite a while, uh, about that sermon. And I think that says a lot more about you than it really does about the sermon. Because for for a group of people to respond in grateful humility when when a pastor speaks difficult truth to them, it, it really... It speaks volumes about who you are and and what you're about. I think it shows that there's there's clearly a a joyful commitment here to the transforming power and the truth of God's word. Even though, let's say this, the application of that power in our hearts and minds is, is often abrasive and even painful. Is that true or not true? <laughs> it is. It was last week. So I just, in saying all that, I just want to honor you, Love City. I want to tell you it's a joy to shepherd you. I'm thankful for you. Most of you, most of the time. Amen. All of you, all of the time. That was a joke. All right. Uh, now, the the point, Brother Andrew made, he's actually right. I don't follow sports like a good American, uh, but I think. The biggest reason I probably don't get to be a a card-carrying member of the Macho Club is is how often I get choked up reading the scriptures. And I, I just want to warn you that today's verses are real difficult for me to read. And I'm sure the same is true for some of you. Today, we're going to see Christ condemned before Pilate. And we're going to see him turned over for even more violent abuse than he faced at the hands of the religious leaders during their mock trial. They were already blindfolding him and punching him in the face and spitting in his face, but it gets worse today. The, the brutality here, is, is, it's hard to comprehend. And that's especially true if you really love Jesus because you know that he loved you first. It makes this hard to even read. Uh, but, but we need to. It's in God's word, and it's, it's good for us. So let's read. Uh, Mark 15, 1 through 24 together. And I'm hoping that we can marvel once more at the sacrificial servant posture taken here by the king of everything. Okay? Mark 15, 1 through 24. Early in the morning, the chief priest with the elders and scribes and the whole council immediately held a consultation. And binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Pilate questioned him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, it is as you say. The chief priests began to accuse him harshly. Then Pilate questioned him again, saying, do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer. So Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release, that's the Passover feast, he used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. The man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. The crowd went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware that the chief priest had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. Answering again, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, Crucify him. But Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers took him away into the palace, that is, the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. They dressed him up in purple, and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him. They began to acclaim him. Hail, King of the Jews. They kept beating his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling and bowing before him. After they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off him and put his own garments on him, and they led him out to crucify him. They pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Then they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. Praise God for his word. Amen. So we're going to come back to verses uh, 1 through 5. I I know that I'm going to forget to say this later when I get rocking and rolling. There's a reference here when it talks about Simon of Cyrene, so this was a man from North Africa that had traveled to uh, the Passover festivities. It's interesting here that Mark makes the note that he's the father of Alexander and Rufus. Like, what, what's the deal with that? Well, there's a, there's a reference in the book of Romans to somebody named Rufus, uh, and it's, it's commonly thought that Simon the Cyrene, though this, this was probably not something he was very excited about as it was happening, being pressed into the service of carrying Christ's crossbar, uh, it, there's, there's the idea that perhaps he and his children came to put faith in Christ and then became a part of the church So it's, it's a vague reference, we're not sure but it, it, sure, that it sure does explain why Mark made the point to say who his sons were, right? Amen. Okay, just wanted to mention that. I, th- I think it's cool um, can't tell if you did or not, but it's okay <laughs> I got the mic so I get to talk about what I think is cool, even if you don't Amen. Okay, verses 1-5 through five. Uh, we're coming back to the beginning now remember i told you this last week they the religious leaders of sanhedrin had to take him to Pilate because by roman law they could not carry out the execution they could have their own little deal and say we think he's guilty but if they wanted capital punishment they had to bring him to rome to have him executed okay they needed to make decision they had to carry it out now you may say well they didn't always follow that rule did they you may be thinking of the stoning of Stephen in Acts seven, right? They didn't they didn't grab Stephen and take him to Pilate, they rushed him and killed him with rocks. Okay, and, and that's true. They didn't always uh, do that. Um, in, <laughs> interestingly enough, I, I recently Googled the stoning of Stephen. Uh, I was looking I was looking for some commentary on it, and in the top five results, um, I, I saw the phrase. You know, you, you start typing something in, and there's like there's suggestions, right? And the top five was. The Stoning of Stephen activities for kids, and uh, I, I was scared to click on. I'm gonna be honest. So if if someone else will and let me know what's going on there, uh, that'd be great. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do it. But anyways, <laughs> like, oh man, not right now. Don't get on Google now, you heathens. The word the word of God's being preached. all right? stay off Google. Later and email me. Amen. So the question is why here? Why'd they follow the rule here? Obviously they didn't with Stephen. Why here? Well, first of all, Jesus was, he's way too high profile, okay, for them to murder him quietly. There was going to be a ruckus about this. Jesus had a lot of followers. Now there there are many who have said that, you know, the same crowd that was screaming Hosanna during the triumphal entry, now they're, they're, they're shouting crucify him. Maybe, maybe some of them, but but we have to remember most of the people that traveled into the Passover were probably staying out in the countryside. All of this is going down early in the morning. Okay, Roman officials—it's it, it's documented that they would they would start judicial proceedings like at the crack of dawn. And so this is happening early. So a lot of those who were excited about Jesus were followers of Jesus. Were probably not in Jerusalem yet. Okay, so and maybe all of that was strategic. But Jesus, in any case, whether they, Jesus is too high profile to just drag him off somewhere and and get rid of him and no one ask any questions or nobody have an issue with it. And secondly, so I'm telling you why they brought him to Pilate instead of just trying to take care of this themselves. If the crowds then found out, the ones who adored Jesus, if they found out about it, if they were to rise up and to look for retribution, uh, the Romans served here as a very useful puppet and a buffer between them and the potential outrage of of those crowds, okay? So, that's at least part of what's going on there. Now, Mark, which most of you probably know, is, is the shortest of all the Gospels, and, and he's often, he's he's getting us the pertinent facts without <clears throat> maybe as much detailed explanation as the other writers, but I want us to make sure we see there's a lot going on in verses three and four, a lot more even than, than uh, Mark expounds on, okay? So, we see the chief priests begin to accuse him harshly. Then Pilate, or Pilate, Pilate was Pilate and questioned. That's what that was. So Pilate isn't a word. Scratch that from the record. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> Pilate questioned him again saying, do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you. So we only see him asking about this king of the Jews thing, but there's multiple things being said. Okay. And Pilate was amazed because Jesus didn't answer. He wasn't going to grovel, okay? Um, the, the religious leaders, what are, what, are, what are all these charges? Well, we know from the other Gospels. We can go and we can look at a similar timeline and piece together. We, we know the religious leaders didn't, they knew that Pilate wouldn't care about their theological issues with Jesus, okay? That he's claiming to be their Messiah and this, he, he don't care. But um, what they did then was they came and they accused Jesus of treason against Rome, tax evasion, and terrorism. Okay? They did everything they could to paint Jesus as a political threat to Rome. That's how they basically forced Pilate, because we can mark is less clear than even the other Gospels about Pilate's reticence to be engaged in this. He's not excited that this is at his doorstep. Okay? But because of the charges they bring it kind of locks him in, puts him in a tough position. Uh, Even though they did, they spun all these lies to try to convince Pilate that Jesus was a political threat, we know he wasn't buying it, right? Because verse 10 tells us plainly, he knew they handed Jesus over because of their envy. So Pilate knows what's up, okay? We also know from the other Gospels that, that Pilate was so unexcited about this that he tries to get out of this mess by sending Jesus to Herod so that Herod could try him. And why, how could that happen? Well, Herod was the Tetrarch over Galilee where Jesus did the majority of his ministry. So Pilate's like, oh, he's a, oh, he's a Galilean? Send him to Herod, right? Like, got him. Nope, because Herod sends him right back. So, but it, I just want to make sure we see Pilate clearly doesn't want this on his hands. He doesn't want to deal with it, but he also can't afford Another riot on his watch because of fear of Caesar's wrath. Okay, it's historically recorded. Pilate didn't have a good relationship with the Jews. He didn't have a good handle on the situation. There was a couple riots under his watch. You know, in the Caesars of those days, uh, the fact that he got three strikes was actually quite merciful. So, so what does that mean? What? How do we understand Pilate's position here? Well, what ended up happening then is that political posturing it takes precedence over what is doing right. It ends up that he makes a decision based on what is most politically expedient versus what is right and what he knows is right. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm really glad that doesn't happen anymore since we are so advanced and virtuous now as a culture. I'm really thankful. That's one of the big takeaways I'm getting out of this today. <laughs> now, so, you know, There's your joke, now I'm coming with the hammer. Here's what I hope we aren't doing, though, as we're sitting here. Okay? I hope we're not wagging our proverbial finger at Pilate here for how much of a coward he's being. Why? Because only those among us who've never acted more out of fear of man than reverence for God should pick up and cast the first stone. Ouch. Ouch. How we doing? We all right? It's, get, it's going to get better or worse, depending on how you look at it. That stings, though, man, but it's good for us. Amen. Verse 5, uh, it, it just says, But Jesus made no further answer, so Pilate was amazed. And here, here we, we, see, we see the humble strength of Jesus. I wonder if anybody here, if you, have you ever been falsely accused And I don't mean some, you know, your brother or sister when you were five. I'm talking about as an adult, man. Have you ever been falsely accused? I'll tell you, I have, and it it burns like the fire of a thousand suns. It's rough. And I I can tell you honestly, I've never been more tempted to verbally lash out than in those moments when I know I'm being falsely accused. And, and, And I also want to say, to my shame, there's many times that I have verbally lashed out in those situations. Um, but in God's great grace, I've also tasted the, the bittersweet flavor of swallowing those words. And, and honestly, it was this scene that helped me in those times. The times that I have responded in obedience to God when being falsely accused, it's been because I remembered Jesus' silence here. And so I just want to commend that to you. Um, it's helpful. <laughs> it should be. But thinking along those lines, I I remember that I've heard it said that we actually shouldn't be so upset when people slander us. Because the truth is, if all of our sinfulness were exposed, that we're far worse than our critics think anyways. You hear what I said? I've actually heard it said when we're slandered, we're falsely accused, we shouldn't be that upset. Because if all of our sinfulness was exposed... We're actually far worse than our critics think. And I want us to sit with that idea for just a minute. That's why I said it twice. In case you were still Googling the stoning of Stephen. Don't do that. (laughs) Uh, I want us to sit with that idea for a minute. I want to ask you genuinely, are you offended by it? What are you talking about? Are you offended by the idea that you're actually... If all your sinfulness were exposed, you're worse than your critics think. Are you offended by that? Do you reject it? And why? Are we open today to the biblical teaching that we are hopelessly sinful in and of ourselves? Are we open to that? And, and, and I know there may be some that would say, no. No. No, I, I do reject that. I, I'm, not, I'm not that bad. I, I, I do so many good things. You don't know me. If you knew me, you'd know how many good things I do. And friend, if, if that's where you're at, I, none of this is, is meant to uh, be harsh. I, I, just, I need to bring truth to bear on this idea. Isaiah 64, 6 says this, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like f- a filthy garment. All of our What? All of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our wrongdoings like the wind take us away. What does that show us? That shows us that even the good things we do are tainted with imperfect motives, according to the Scriptures. You might say, well, look, man, you're being kind of harsh. I mean, of course I'm not perfect, but I I have a good heart. Let me read you Jeremiah 17, verses 5 and 9. This is what the Lord says. Okay, I heard what you said, maybe. I have a good heart. Well, this is what the Lord says. Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? We need to quit thinking we can see into the depths of the human heart, whether it be others or our own. There's only one that can do that. His name is Jesus. Amen. You You may be here today and you may believe some variant of of a false teaching that says because you're given a new heart upon conversion, once you become a Christian, that you now no longer struggle with sin. That's actually more common than you may think. So maybe maybe there, you've, you've heard people teach, there, oftentimes people that teach this make it to TV because it's a pleasant message, that now in Christ, because of grace, you have no need of being concerned about sin. You're, you're a new creation in Christ, and that means, because the mercy and the grace of God has been applied to you, that everything else I've said thus far about our sinfulness doesn't apply anymore. It's, it's only that you're the righteousness of God in Christ. It's only that you're a new creation. And, and what that means now is that you have no struggle with sin. You don't need to worry about that. Well, let me read you this. 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 5. This is the message we've heard from him, Jesus, and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. I'm going to say two things. One, 1 John 1.7 is a verse you should memorize because buddy, that's good. A, but I also want to say, if, if, if if you and me are in a, in a little bit of a mental wrestling match right now as I'm laying out what I'm laying out. You might have heard verse 7. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You might be going, yeah, hey, stop, that's me right there. That, that's me, I'm walking in the light. So the blood of Jesus cleanses me from all sin. I've got fellowship with the brethren. That's me. So none of that stuff, other stuff you said applies to me. Okay. That's you. I shouldn't have done that. That's not... (laughs) I love you, man. We just got to work through this. Let me just read the next... That was verse 7 of 1 John 1. Verse 8. If we... Is he still talking to the same people? Yes, he is. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous so that he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What does that mean? Friends, we have to understand this is very important. It's elementary in terms of doctrine, but it's something that it, it, it gets easily muddled for some reason. Being justified and made positionally righteous before God does not mean we have no need of the ongoing process of sanctification. The moment you trust Christ by faith and receive his grace and mercy, yes, in the eyes of God, you are are made positionally righteous. You are given the status that Jesus alone earned. But the Bible is clear, that does not mean what many think it means. That now, there is no further process to undergo. Being justified by grace through faith in Christ is what determines our eternal fate. Being sanctified is a process that continues until we reach that eternal state. So yes, positionally, you are perfect in the sight of God, made righteous through Christ. But that does not mean... So what that means is if if you were to die today, yes, you are saved and you are seen as righteous before God. But the reality of our existence as we continue in however many days God grants us in this world... We will always be in a process of sanctification. He is He is conforming us, He's shaping us, He's working on us, transforming us into the image of Christ. That's an ongoing process that isn't over the day we receive Christ, that's the day it begins and then continues. Amen? So, all of that considered, if we really, if we are really so broken, That we shouldn't be upset when we're slandered because the reality of our sinfulness is actually far worse. If that's true, and I think a semi-decent case for that was just made, then if that's true, how do we not live slumped down in a perpetual puddle of self-loathing? If what I just laid upon us from the scriptures is true, how does that not just leave us in, in a place of, of despair. Well, I'm, I'm so glad you asked that. But here's my encouragement to you. Don't ask me. Ask Barabbas. Because he's got the answer. Let's read verses 6 through 15 again. Now at the feast, he used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. The man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. The crowd went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware that the chief priest had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. Answering again, Pilate said, Then what shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, Crucify him. But Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Keep in mind that that scourging, it's just one, one word by the account of Mark. This, this is that beating. This is that beating with the whip that would have, would have tore the flesh from Christ's back. This was, this was a, a tenderizing before the kill, basically. This was meant to create... Uh, High levels of blood loss. It was meant to begin the process of death, so that they didn't hang on the, the crucifixion cross too long. It was brutal. That's what that scourging is. Okay. Now here's what I'm going I'm to float this to you. I, I, <clears throat> Just to be safe, I'm going to leave it in the place of opinion in case someone comes with something to say. But in my opinion, there there perhaps are places in the scriptures to get as clear of a picture of the gospel as we get here. But I'm going to say, my opinion is, I dare, I dare say there's not a clearer picture of the gospel than what we see in Barabbas. First of all, let's just look at it. The, the religious leaders, they twisted the words and actions of Jesus to accuse him of what? What did I tell you? Treason, tax evasion, and terrorism, right? Right? What does verse 7 say Barabbas was on death row for? Murder as a part of what? An insurrection. What's another word for an insurrectionist? A terrorist, right? Here's here's what I'm trying to get you to see. Barabbas, Jesus ended up being accused of the very things Barabbas had actually done. There's an equal sign between them, okay? Okay. It's also interesting to consider the meaning of Barabbas' name, okay? Bar means son. Like when Peter, when Jesus said, you know, who who are people saying that I am? Peter gives his answer, you're you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says it to him, Simon Bar-Jonah, right? Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you. Spirit of God's done it. Simon Bar-Jonah. Simon, son of Jonah. That's what that means. Bar, son of. What's Abba mean? father. The name actually means son of the father. What does that mean? That means the crowd had two sons of the father to choose from that day. And they, they chose the wrong one. Now here's, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Really try to imagine this with me. Put yourself here if you can. Imagine for a moment what it was like for Barabbas put yourself in his shoes you're sitting there you're hearing the crowd shout crucify him and and you know you've done everything needed to deserve that sentence you're waiting for the guards to come and seize you shaking with fearful anticipation and then it comes they come, they grab you They haul you out in front of the people. But instead of being tied to a post and scourged with a whip to start the process of your execution, instead of that, they take the shackles off and tell you, you're free to go. Then, Jesus, the healer, the miracle worker, the one that fed the poor and raised the dead, Jesus then gets tied to your post. Jesus gets beat with your whip while the crowds hurl jeers and insults that you deserved. Friends, let me, if the dots haven't connected yet, let me make it really plain. I am Barabbas, and you are Barabbas. It wasn't just the punishment for his rebellion against the emperor of Rome that Jesus took that day. It was the punishment for our rebellion against the king of everything. And and here, we haven't even got to the most scandalous part yet. Verses 16 through 20. The soldiers took him away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. They dressed him up in purple, and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him. They began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews. They kept beating his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling and bowing before him. After they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off him, put his own garments on him, and they led him out to crucify him. See, we hear them, these soldiers, this cohort of soldiers again, throwing this this mockery at Jesus about him being the king of the Jews. Here's here's the thing. This is why I'm saying the example with Barabbas is that's deep. But Jesus isn't just the king of the Jews. Jesus is the king of everything. The rebellion that, that 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 was being paid for was against the one paying for it. This would have been like Caesar showing up that day for Barabbas. And so, so Caesar shows up from Rome. Barabbas is about to be executed. It's like Caesar saying, no. Barabbas is guilty, but I have the authority and the power to take his place. Because he's Caesar, he can't just let the law go unchecked. He can't let the punishment not be done, but instead... Acknowledging that justice must be done, it'd be like Caesar saying for Barabbas, I have the power to tell you right now, soldiers, carry out his sentence on me. That's how justice will be served here. Someone's got got to pay the price. I'm going to do it for him. It's like that, but to an infinitely higher degree. That Jesus, because Caesar was a big deal, right? Especially in that time. Rome was doing pretty good. That would have been shocking on every level. The king of everything stepping in in that way. Not just for Barabbas, but for you and me. We shouldn't be over the shock of that yet. Many have said, why did Jesus have to die? Why couldn't God just forgive us? Because, friends, we've got to see not just a treason against Rome, cosmic treason has been committed against a perfect and holy God. And we've all joined in the rebellion with our sin. And only God has the authority to step in and say, they are guilty, but punish me instead. Friends, can we not see it? Can we not see it in the crown of thorns? Let me read this to you. Genesis 3. This is, this is right after our first parents' sin. And God is letting them know the curse and the consequences of that rebellion. Cursed is the ground because of you. With hard labor you shall eat from it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. Yet you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Guys, Jesus let the thorns that we deserve pierce his brow. And he made it by the sweat of his face that we could taste the bread of life. This punishment had to go forward. God cannot in his perfect holy justness just allow it to go, to be. But what do we have here in the fact that that very God in the person of Christ comes down into the dirt where we are serves, loves, blesses, teaches feeds and then allows those who caused the need for this savagery to commit it to him to brutalize him they mocked him and dressed him in purple and they called him king of the Jews but little did they know they were torturing they were torturing their very maker they were torturing come on king of the Jews They, they didn't get it man they're yelling that they're beating on the king of everything the universe they brutalized him to the point that any ICU would have deemed him critical To the point, I don't know, are you sure? Well, someone, a a man who had spent years walking around the Galilean countryside, before that spent time in his father's carpentry business, probably was pretty fit. They brutalized him to the point he couldn't carry a 100-pound crossbar. Simon the Cyrene had to be brought in. There's some that say as the language shifts from the beginning of of leaving with the crossbar to the end, that it seems that what they're saying is they led him at first, and then it says they brought him, almost as if towards the end he had to be carried. And, And you may be asking, I hope you are, how does all of this, how does it help us with the question we pose? What was the question? If we're so broken, if we're so broken, how do we not despair? What's the answer? Because if the king of everything is willing to do this for you, there is no question left about your value. Yes, you are more sinful on your own than you know, but at the same time, you are more loved than you can even comprehend. Those are true simultaneously. Jesus was so committed to taking the punishment you deserve, he wouldn't even take the sedative that they offered him in verse 23. It says they offered him wine mixed with myrrh that was commonly given to people about to be crucified. Because, I mean, throughout history, it's, it's pretty widely agreed upon. There, there, there might be close to equally gruesome ways to die, but crucifixion, the very word excruciating, comes from it. This was an incredibly painful experience. And they would offer him this wine mixed with myrrh and it would would act as a sedative and Jesus refused it. There couldn't be any dulling of his senses. As he went through the punishment, you should have gotten. He had to feel it all. Another... Another mere human loving you enough to die for you does not have the same effect that this has. It doesn't say the same thing because, because they can't see how sinful you truly are. And they have their own sin to deal with. Okay? But if a perfect, holy God who sees all and knows all, if he loves you like this, there's no one left to question your worth. There's no one else that can stand up and object. Imagine this for a moment. Imagine you're you're in a trial, okay? You're the defendant, and the trial is to determine your worth. Do you have worth and value? And I realize that many of you in your life, others may stand up and testify against you having worth and value. Some of you may even get on the stand and testify against yourself having worth and value. But here's what we see. Even if all of that was, and even if much of that testimony about your wretchedness was true, right? Here's here's what we still see. The judge in this trial is perfect and he knows all the evidence. He already knows it all. And the sacrifice of Christ is like the deafening slam of his gavel as he declares the verdict. I find the defendant Precious and of great value. This act of sacrifice on Christ's part, what he's done here, is like that judge slamming his gavel and saying, No more witnesses, there's nothing else to hear. They're precious, they're valuable to me. And you have to keep in mind, friends, it's only because of the judge's power and authority and perfection that that verdict is true. Our worth and value comes from Him. Right? That's what I'm saying. That's, <laughs> this, is, this is hard. We, we, we sang today, it's why, man, gosh, that got me, guys. There's a line of that second song we sang. It says, two, two wonders, I don't know the exact, two wonders now that I confess, something like that. My worth and my unworthiness. My worth And my unworthiness. How does does that work? And and the problem is, oftentimes, because that's very difficult to understand, how how do those go together? How do I think about my worth, but also my unworthiness? How how, How do they dovetail together, do they? Oftentimes what happens is people end up picking one or the other and way overemphasizing it at the cost of the other. I heard someone say recently, Jesus didn't die for you because you're valuable. And they quoted Romans 5, which says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Okay? And so the point they're making there is, they said he he died because of our worthlessness, not our worth. But, But let me read you the whole verse. This is all of Romans 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What does that mean? That means, friends, yes, 100%. We are worthless on our own merits. But the king of everything, the great judge, the omniscient, all-knowing one, who sees all our sinfulness and brokenness in all of its ugliness, that one, and loves us enough to subject himself to what we read today. And he does that in order to have us, okay? In his sacrifice, there is a statement made about our value that cannot be questioned. He's the one that gets the determinant. He's the final greatest authority. There's no one else that gets to stand up and say, well, what about, no, no. He's made his point very clear. And it's made most crystal clear when the king of everything allows himself to be treated like this because on the back side of it, the Bible says he was keeping in mind the hope that was before him. What is that? Friend, it's you and it's me and it's him forever. It's those of us that will trust him by faith being reconciled and restored into the relationship that we were originally intended for. God sees that of such great value and so precious that he'll pay this price in order to have it. There's no other argument to be brought. There's nothing else to say. That conversation is over. (laughs) My worth and my unworthiness. That's how they come together. That's how they relate to each other. That's how they both stand true at the same time. Amen. If you were in that trial that I was asking you to imagine, what would you say? Would you say if you were asked, do you have any value or worth? What what would you answer? You've got the, the king of everything and the judge of all the universe looking you in the eye, says to you, Do you have value? Do you have worth? How would you answer? I'm asking you to really explore where does your mind go for this question. To, how do you assess this question? Where do you go? If I was to ask you, do you have value and worth? Is it your opinion of yourself? Is that where you go to answer him? Is it measuring yourself against some societal standard? Is it, is it what other mere humans have said about you or done to you? Is that where you would go? To answer him? Friends, what I'm asking you to do is to come here to answer him. Is to let this speak to you what it should speak to you. To let it determine for you what it should determine for you. To let it settle the issue. Forever. Will you run to those other places to answer him or will you realize who has the authority to speak on the matter And let your heart be melted and your mind overcome by the fact that Jesus went way beyond saying that we have value and worth. He sacrificed everything to show it. A lot of people like that phrase, actions speak louder than words. There's some truth to that. Christ isn't a king that just walks the walk, man that just talks the talk, he, he walked the walk all the way. The pain, the shame, the wrath, the punishment, this was the price. And the very highest went the very lowest in order to pay it for you and for me. And what he's asked in return, get this, What He's asked in return for rescuing us is to believe Him, to trust in His grace, to love Him in return, and to love others enough to tell them He wants to rescue them too. All that He's done, and that's what He asks, believe me, trust in my grace, respond to my love by loving me too, (laughs) and love others. Enough to let them know I want to rescue them as well. And so the question I leave us with today. Is it too much for us? Is it too much for us, dear friends, to love our Savior and to share his good gospel with a world who needs him? May it never be. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now in the name of Jesus. Uh, Lord, thank you that the Bible is not scrubbed of the reality of of human brutality. Thank you that difficult verses, difficult realities uh, were left in here for us to wrestle with, for us to think through. We thank you for the help of your Holy Spirit today, guiding us through your word, illuminating for us what it is you want to say to us, the purpose for recording these events. Thank you for all that you've spoken to us today by your word. God, I am well aware that much of, much much of if not everything that was said today as truth claims from your word is vehemently opposed by many. There are many who hate everything all the truth that we drew from your word today. And there are messages that barrage your children, that barrage your people, and barrage those that have yet to come to trust you constantly with counter-messages. There's a a constant barrage and counter-message to stop looking for affirmation elsewhere. Stop looking for someone else to let you know that you have value and worth. Look inside. Find it in yourself. Lord, we understand the appeal of that. We understand so many people are broken and, 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 and they have this deep gnawing sense, this ache and this pain. They know something isn't right. And they're searching for answers. But God, we also know that if they look for those answers in themselves, it's, it's going to be a never-ending, exhausting journey in a circle. Lord, the only way that gnawing ache, that sense of brokenness can be addressed is by us coming to you. The only way we can answer the question of what our value and worth is is by coming to you. By submitting to your authority on the matter. By believing what you say more than what we hear from every other source. Please help us to do that. Please help us to trust you. Please help us, Lord, to keep these things, these tensions held in our mind as we navigate life in in whatever spheres we're going in daily, Lord. These these counter-messages, they pound upon us. They crash upon us like waves. Help us to stand firm, anchored in the beautiful truth of your gospel. Not just so that we can avoid being swept up in the torrent of these lies and deceptions, but so that we can also reach our hands out to others. To let them know they can find hope in you too. Lord, we love you. Thank you that we are more wretched and broken than we know. But at the same time, loved and of greater value and worth than we can even possibly comprehend. Help us hold this tension in place by faith for your glory, O God. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission.